Herbert George Wells, 1866 to 1946, better known by his initials, H.G. Wells, was so regarded by his uh, fellow uh, authors uh, that he's, he's dubbed the father of science fiction. He wrote some 50 novels, most of them in that genre of science fiction, but more specifically in the genre of social science fiction. Because it was H.G.'s desire to create a futuristic utopian society. Among the um, nonfiction work that he pumped out, he contributed to many other different fields and wrote extensively in nonfiction realms. In 1917, he published a book titled God the Invisible King, where he touched on theology. He, he stated his objective in the foreword of his book, quote, he wanted to state as forcefully and exactly as possible the religious belief of the author. Kent Hughes, commentator, pastor, biblical scholar, um, gives us an insight into Wells's theology. And he fashioned it this way. Wells once said that the world is like a great stage production produced and managed by God. As the curtain rises, the set is perfect, a treat to every eye. The characters are resplendent. Everything goes well until the leading man steps on the hem of the leading lady's gown, causing her to trip over a chair, which knocks over a lamp, which pushes a table into a wall, which in turn knocks over the scenery, which brings everything down on the heads of the actors. Meanwhile, behind the scenes, God is running around, shouting orders, pulling strings, trying desperately to restore order from chaos, but alas, he is unable to do so. Poor God. The next to the last page in Wells' book, God the Invisible King, he pleads his case for this utopian society specifically addressing the, the topic of religion. And he calls for a modern religion that has no revelation and no founder. Okay, call it what you will but a, a religion that has no revelation and that has no founder is most certainly not Christianity. It's sci-fi at best, the product of some demonic muse, maybe. Christianity is at its very core a religion, a relationship, an acknowledgement that the founder, the creator of the cosmos, has supernaturally created, supernaturally intervened in the workings of this created order. And he has left for us a perfect revelation in himself, in the person of Jesus, and has left for us, left behind this revelation of his word. Without this, without this Bible, without God revealing himself, we have no hope, and there is no such thing as Christianity. We must have this book. And it reveals to us 
that God is the one who is large and in charge. He is the one who has authored, initiated, and fulfilled all that is contained herein in his self-revelation. I titled my message this morning, Planning Your Own Arrest. Mirrored off of the actions of our Lord Jesus. I'm returning to our study through the Gospel of John. It's been a number of months since we have been here. And just by way of review, um, in John's Gospel, there are nine chapters out of 21 that deal exclusively with the last week of Jesus' life. Nine out of 21 chapters deal with his last weeks, the words that he spoke, the things that he did, primarily the things that he spoke. Just by way of review, in John chapter 12, we find Jesus triumphantly entering the city of Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday. Chapter 13, we're a little later into the week, Thursday, and Jesus is celebrating the traditional Passover meal with his men. He reveals to them at that point that he is going to be betrayed and he's going to be handed over to the religious authorities. In chapters 14, 15, and 16, we call that those three chapters the upper room discourse. There, after the meal, of course, Judas Iscariot is gone by this point. Jesus talks pointedly, honestly, vulnerably to his men. He wants them to know that he has their back. Though he is going to leave them, that doesn't mean he is going to depart from them. He is going to be sending to them the Holy Spirit. In chapter 17 of John's Gospel, we call this the high priestly prayer of Jesus, where he gives us uh, that unequaled privilege of listening in to a real prayer he utters to the Father. This is a, this is a private matter, but these words have been revealed to us that we might know the heart of our Savior. The, the themes of God's glory and the Son's obedience and uh, the, uh, the disciples' protection are prominent in this particular chapter. Now this morning, we open up chapter 18. Chapter 18 deals with Jesus' uh, arrest and, and the mock trial that he endures. Chapter 19 deals with his crucifixion, and chapter 20 deals with his resurrection. This morning, chapter 18, first 11 verses. Read with me as, um, as we continue in our study. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place. For Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Jesus, knowing all things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he had said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Therefore he again asked them, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. 
Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these go their way. To fulfill the word which, was, which he spoke, of those whom I have given me, you have given me, I lost not one. Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. And the slave's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put the sword in the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? I encourage you to um, um, follow along with your notes. Here in my introduction, second bullet point, I ask the question, what's missing? You know the story of Jesus' arrest. You've, you've heard it many times before. I've preached through Matthew. I've preached through Luke. You've, you've heard that, that, that account where, where Judas arranged with the religious leaders that he would take them to Jesus and he would give Jesus a kiss. John doesn't include that. And before that, there's no mention of Jesus praying in the garden. You, you remember, he, he, he was so, so full of grief that he sweat as, as, as though they were drops of blood, and he prayed, not my will be done, but thine, dear Father. John doesn't include that. Why not? Aren't those significant things? Remember, the fourth gospel is the supplemental gospel. The synoptic gospels, meaning the same, include these kinds of details. John wrote last. He was, he was the, the, the fourth in line, if you will, of the evangelists who, who wrote a gospel record. He knew that others had read Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And because of his purpose, Remember, his purpose is explicitly stated in chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. His purpose was that his readers might know and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's John's objective. So because all these details of the prayer that Jesus utters, the kiss that, that Judas gives in betrayal, he knows that those details are already out there, and people understand that. They, they know that. So he doesn't include that, and that doesn't make him wrong or inaccurate in any way. Simply, he has a different purpose in mind. And those details didn't fit into that purpose. Point number one. The violated sanctuary, the sanctuary of the garden. Verse 1 begins, when Jesus had spoken these words. What words? Are these the words of chapters 14, 15, 16 that we call the upper room discourse? Are they the words of chapter 17 that we call the Lord's high priestly prayer? We don't know. What we do know is that there is a marked transition between what precedes chapters 14, 15, 16, 17, and what follows chapters 18, 19, and 20. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron. Now, to the east of the walls of Jerusalem, and the temple um, is, is on the eastern part of the, the city of Jerusalem. So when we say the eastern part of the, of the city, we could also say the eastern part of the temple. 
there is a ravine, a wadi, if you will, a winter wet stream that flows when there are lots of water coming down out of the sky, usually in the wintertime in, in Israel. The rest of the time, it's a dry riverbed. They crossed the wadi called the Kidron. Having crossed that, they begin climbing up the Mount of Olives. And it says in the middle of verse 18 that there was a garden there. Now here's another detail that John doesn't, uh, doesn't give us, but other uh, gospel writers do. This particular garden is called Gethsemane which translated means oil press. Evidently, there was a business that was run in this garden that Jesus entered with his disciples, end of verse 1, implies that there was probably some kind of enclosure uh, circumscribing the the, um, some kind of fence that was circumscribed the garden. So this was probably a private business where olives were pressed and crushed and the owner of this particular garden gave Jesus and his men permission to stay there. Now this was a, a usual place for them to stay. At the very least, it was usual for that time. Now we know from Matthew's Gospel in chapter 21 that on Palm Sunday of this feast week leading up to the Passover, on Palm Sunday evening, Jesus went back to Bethany home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Bethany is a, is a small bedroom community on the other side of the Mount of Olives. So it's on the east side of the Mount of Olives. The Garden of Gethsemane is on the western side of the Mount of Olives. And in Luke 21, we read this in verse 37. Now during the day, we're talking about this, this last week in Jesus' life. During the day, he was teaching in the temple, but at, at the evening, he would go out and spend the night on the mount that is called Olivet. And then in chapter 22, we read in Luke's Gospel also, he came out and proceeded as was his custom to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples also followed him. He arrived at the place. He said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. He withdrew for them. From them about a stone's throw, he knelt down and began to pray. And this is the, uh, not my will, but thine prayer, in the Garden of Gethsemane. So we know from Luke's account that the weeks, or the days in that festival week, um, except for Sunday night, the, the nights of that particular week, Jesus spent in the Garden of Gethsemane. Quite possibly, they slept under the stars. All right? Now, um, because this was his habit, um, uh, Judas knew exactly where he was staying. So he was on, maybe, we don't know if it was private property, but we're, we're surmising that at this point. Um, he was on private property, tucked away uh, behind some trees, and they just kind of had their, their camp right there. New Testament scholar D.A. Carson says that the, uh, the Jewish law required that all pilgrims coming to Jerusalem for one of the feasts stay in Jerusalem. But due to the the the, the nature of, of the city and its, its confinement because of the walls and the number of people that came to these feasts, um, the religious leaders extended the city limits, if you will. So 
they allowed people to stay outside of the city, though they called it still staying in the city of Jerusalem. You tracking? So um, the religious leaders included the the um, western side of the Mount of Olives, which would have included the Garden of Gethsemane, as being part of the city limits. But they excluded what was on the other side, the eastern side of the Mount of Olives. So Jesus may have had an arrangement with this landowner to stay there with his men, possibly for a number of feasts and festivals. It may have been their go-to place while in town. Regardless, Judas knew exactly where this place was. He'd been there at least during the nights of that particular week leading up to Thursday night. He was not there Thursday night with Jesus, but he he figured that that's where Jesus would be. Verse 2. Judas, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Verse 3. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Now between verses 3 and 4, we find Jesus kneeling in the garden. He is praying there. Then he, he finishes his prayer. He gets up, and he goes to the entrance of the garden. There he is met by Judas and a few other guys. Let me talk about the few other guys for just a second. When it says that there was a Roman cohort that was following Judas, we're talking about a group of men numbering between 600 and 1,000. And then when it talks about um, officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, we're talking about the Jewish temple police that were under the authority of the chief priests, that is the religious left, and the Pharisees, that is the religious right. So here's a group of men following Judas that were Gentiles and Jews. We could use the language of, of the Apostle John in his epistles when he refers to um, Jews and Gentiles together, he uses, he uses the phrase uh, twice in that epistle, um, the whole world. The whole world was following Judas and coming after Jesus. <clears throat> now, um, Matthew tells us that there was a large crowd that came with Judas. We don't know how many people there were. There were hundreds, but how many hundreds? We don't know. Uh, probably not all of the Roman cohort. Probably not all of the temple police. I mean, if you heard a story of uh, somebody having a a, a fire at their home, and you heard the weather, or you you heard the uh, uh, the emergency report, uh, the the fire department responded to the fire. That doesn't necessarily mean that every firefighter and every fire truck in the city was present on that location. So when the text of Scripture here says that he, had the, that he had the Roman cohort and the officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, it doesn't mean that all of them were there. But we can be assured that there were a whole bunch. I think it's worth noting in Acts chapter 23 when Paul is under... Uh, uh, 
He wasn't technically under Roman arrest, but he was under protective custody by the Romans at that point. He was transported from Jerusalem to Caesarea on the coast, you'll recall. And the scriptures tell us that there were 470 soldiers that accompanied the apostle Paul. So how many were there following Judas to arrest Jesus? We don't know. But they came, into verse 3, they came with lanterns and torches and weapons. Now think about this for just a minute. Passover always occurs when there's a full moon. Always. Their, their calendar is a lunar calendar. Always. Passover is at a full moon. And we know that it was cold that night, suggesting that skies were clear. Likely, there was light from the moon. So what's with all the flashlights? Torches? Lanterns? Well, think about this. These uh, Roman soldiers, trained Roman soldiers, and officers of the religious authorities, also trained men, would have expected what? from a suspect they were hunting down at night. They would have expected flight or a fight. So the lanterns and the torches and the weapons were necessary to deal with anything that they didn't know was going to happen. They were prepared for the worst. Second page of your notes. Verse 4. They have, they have violated the sanctuary of, of the garden. And there is this verbal confrontation that is about to take place. So Jesus, knowing all things that were coming upon him, don't miss that phrase, knowing that all things that were coming upon him, he went forth and asked them, whom do you seek? Now think about the sequence of events here. We we have to put the Gospels together in a chronology in order to accomplish this. After Jesus finished praying in the garden, he got up, he he went with his men to to the opening of the garden. He knew what was happening. And he's met there with Judas and a few other guys. What does Judas do? He's going to fulfill his promise. He is going to go up and he is going to kiss Jesus on the cheek. Now culturally, that was a statement of love and loyalty. And Judas took a beautiful thing and turned it on on its ear. Used it as a mark of betrayal. So when Jesus asks the question, whom do you seek? What should they have said? Because Jesus had already been identified by Judas who kissed him. Jesus asks, who do you want? And they should have said, you. We have a a warrant for your arrest. They didn't say that. Instead, they answered, Jesus the Nazarene. 
It's almost as though Jesus' question was so forceful, so powerful that it unnerved them, and they fumbled around with their paperwork. Uh, just a second. Um, uh, what's, what's this guy's? Uh, Jesus uh, the Nazarene? That's who we're after? And he said to them, I am he. If you have God's translation, New American Standard, you will notice that the word he, the pronoun he, is italicized in that statement. I am he. The word he is in italic type. Now, that's not for an emphasis. The editors of the New American Standard translation tell us at the, at, at the foreword of, 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 of this uh, translation, uh, we have italicized type to alert the reader that the word or phrase that is italicized is not in the original language. So the words that Jesus said did not include the word he. It's implied, it's not inaccurate, but it's not literal. The Greek phrase is egoemi. Woodenly translated, I am, I am. This is the same Greek phrase that translates the Hebrew tetragrammaton, the name that God gave to Moses to give to the children of Israel, to Pharaoh. We translate it Yahweh. I am who I am. Jesus asks, who do you want? They say, Jesus the Nazarene. And Jesus says, I am! <laughs> Where else have we seen that in this book? I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, the life. I am. Jesus is making a, 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 a clear declaration of his deity. Now, we don't know if they, if, if, if they, if they got that. Roman soldiers, um, that may have just gone whoosh, right over their heads. The Jews who knew the law, they knew the Old Testament, they may not have agreed with it, but they may have got it. I want you to see their reaction. But the reaction is in verse 6. And verse 5 is one that we haven't covered yet, and it's important. Let me pause, look at verse 5 before we look at the reaction by this lynch mob to Jesus, I am statement. Verse 6, I'm sorry, verse 5. Um, end of that verse says, Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. Now picture the scene here. Jesus is standing in front of the garden. His men are behind him. Judas has come up. They are obviously close because Judas is given Jesus a kiss on the cheek. There's all these men behind Judas. Whom do you seek? Jesus the Nazarene. I am he. And then we have this statement about Judas standing with them in the face of a declaration of Jesus' divinity. He is the creator of the cosmos. The authority of heaven and hell. 
Jesus declares himself, I am. Yet, Judas stands with them against Jesus. How could anyone think that was good or, or okay or acceptable? I cannot fathom that. Look at verse 6. This is the reaction of the lynch mob. So when he, that is Jesus, said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. With such a authority did Jesus declare who he was that they fell backwards. Now it's at this time that the, that the skeptic will... Who, who, who wants to do away with, with revelation and do away with the founder of any religion, do away with the supernatural altogether. It's, it's here that the, that the skeptic stumbles. And it's, it's in this, this, this whole, uh, the whole three chapters of Jesus' arrest and his execution and his resurrection that they, that they spill ink all over themselves trying to articulate, trying to fabricate some kind of explanation as to why these apparently supernatural things could not possibly have happened. And here's one of the explanations that the skeptics might have here. Well, the, the men that were following Judas were following each other so close that when they stopped, they were standing on each other's hem, the hem of their, their, their garments. And then when Jesus asked the question, whom do you seek, and the whoever was in charge of the religious authorities said Jesus the Nazarene and Jesus comes back and says I am he rather than taking a step backward recoiling trying to run away he steps forward frightening these soldiers and because they were so close so so tightly packed in with one another they fell over like dominoes. No supernatural event here. I have a response to that kind of silliness. Balderdash. No. These are trained soldiers. And if you are hunting for a suspect, you have a warrant for their arrest, what are you expecting? Flight or a fight? Are they going to be all bunched together? No. They're going to be spread out. They're going to be covering all of the contingencies, all of the possible ways he could, could, could flee and escape. They're not all packed together. We know that definitively. Supernaturally, did Jesus speak? And supernaturally did they encounter this kind of, of uh, force, power, authority, and they fell backwards. Verse 7, so again Jesus asked them, whom do you seek? <laughs> Check your warrant, guys. Pull out the paperwork. What does it say exactly? They looked, and it says, Jesus the Nazarene. So Jesus answered them, verse 8, I told you I am he. So if you seek me, let these, speaking of his men, go their way. This was to fulfill, verse 9, this was to fulfill the words which Jesus spoke of those whom you have given me, I lost 
not one. If you go back to Jesus' high priestly prayer in the preceding chapter, look at verse 12. Jesus is praying to the Father. Now, he, he's, he's allowing us to, to listen in, but this, this, is, this is not for us. He's not informing us. He's not praying for us. He's praying to the Father. That's his focus. And he says, while I was with them, speaking of his men, his disciples, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition. Jesus protected his men spiritually. Here he is protecting them physically. He makes sure that those coming for his arrest take him and him only. Jesus is very, very concerned about his own. I want you to listen to what Martin Luther said uh, with regard to this text. Quote, Christ can strike down his enemies and defend his disciples with one word and did this when he was weak and willed to suffer. So Martin Luther asks this question. What may and can he do now that he is exalted to the right hand of God? And what will he do at the last day? If he, if he is able to do this with a one little word, what can he do for us? Wow. Worthy of some thoughtful consideration. Well, um, point number three in your outline, the armed confrontation, we find ourselves at verse 10. Verse 10 says, Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's slave, and cut off his right ear. Well, we can be thankful that Peter was a fisherman and not a fighter because he had no idea what he was doing with his sword in his hand. What was he thinking? Well, he wasn't thinking. He was reacting. We learn in Luke's Gospel that the disciples had two swords among them while they were there in the garden. And it's not a surprise that one of those swords finds its, itself in the hands of impetuous Peter. And when Peter sees these soldiers falling backwards, he sees a weakness. He sees a vulnerability. And he's not thinking, he's reacting. He's thinking, well, this is an impossible situation. This is our only chance. And so in an attempt to take off this guy's head, he manages only an ear. Now we can be thankful that uh, Jesus was there because uh, Jesus heals the guy. According to Luke's gospel, um, we, we can't discern if Jesus picked up the remains and attached the ear to his head, or if Jesus grew another ear immediately uh, and left the bloody mess in the dirt. We, we don't know. We're not told. We, and it doesn't matter. I would surmise that this guy was able to hear better out of that ear after Jesus healed him. If Peter was thinking, which he wasn't, he might, have, he might have thought, well, if Jesus could knock these guys down with two, two words, what could we do with two swords? Hmm. Jesus, oh, well, well let me, let me make, make one comment here at the end of verse 10. We find out that the slave's name is Malchus. It's not told elsewhere uh, in, in the other gospel records um, what this guy's name is. Is it significant? Um, probably not. Um, it, it, what it does tell us is that John had some intimate knowledge of the high priestly family. Uh, he was the one that was able to get Peter in the door 
for Jesus' initial trial before Caiaphas. And that's probably because that's why he mentions the guy's name. And it's possible that Malchus came to faith. And because of that, uh, John wants to, to help, help his readers connect some of the dots. We find Jesus' rebuke in verse 11. Put the sword in the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? The, um, the, the cup, as uh, is mentioned here, is a, is a familiar image in the Old Testament. It speaks of suffering. It speaks of God's wrath. And Jesus is intending to drink it. He planned his own arrest. He anticipated all of the possibilities, all of the pieces that came to fruition here. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26, we have uh, more, more words that Jesus spoke in rebuke to Peter on that occasion. Matthew reports, uh, Jesus said to, to Peter, put your sword back in its place for all those who take the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? How then will the scriptures be fulfilled which say that it must happen this way? Yes, it had to happen this way. Jesus asked the rhetorical question. John records it. Shall I not drink this cup? Absolutely. He had to. Conclusion. John wants us to be sure that we don't feel sorry for Jesus because he got tripped up, caught up, and arrested unawares. Nor should we, uh, n- nor, nor can we allow the, the, the skeptic to, to mock Jesus in some kind of uh, um, nasty way as though he was... Uh, he, he was a pawn in this, and he, he, he just didn't see it coming. No, Jesus predicted this event. Going back to chapter 10 of John's Gospel, verse 17, Jesus says, uh, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I might take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it back up again. The arrest, the execution, the resurrection, all of this was divinely scripted from eternity past. God purposed that Jesus come, he live a perfect life, he die the death of a sacrificial lamb. He died as a substitute for those who would believe. We see it uh, very, very clearly uh, revealed to us in Isaiah 53. Verse 6, the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Verse 10, the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, rendering him as a guilt offering. Verse 11, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. My servant will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. It was scripted from eternity past. 
Jesus had to come. He had to be arrested. He had to die. He was the one who took the initiative to go to the entrance of the, uh, of the garden and speak with the crowd that was behind Judas. Whom do you seek? No flight. No fight. Jesus willingly gave himself up for us who would believe. John chapter 12, verse 27, Jesus says, What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, Ah, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And so Jesus came. He gave up his life willingly and glorified the Father whose plan was perfectly accomplished. If you are a believer in Christ, you are the beneficiary of that gift. Give thanks our loving Lord. Our Father, we thank you for the work of Christ. So easy to say those words, and yet it was so costly for you to make it possible for us to give thanks. Be pleased by our behavior, by our mindset, by our choices, uh, by our conversations, that in all of these things we would reflect the glory of Christ and be the light you call us to be to a dying world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.